Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started. Well, we've got a real diverse show for you this week. We'll start with a story about citizen science, and then after that, J. Scott Miller, Bench Talk team member and physics professor and governing board member of the Kentucky Academy of Science, will speak about recent observations of black holes and how astronomers are using that to confirm Albert Einstein's theory of relativity. Then we'll continue our series on cancer and oncology career development in the Appalachian regions of Kentucky. This week, we'll hear from Zachary Hall from Letcher County. Then Professor Miller will be back telling us about the latest on modeling climate change. What's up with these stories about the Earth getting cooler due to changes in sun activity? And what's the potential for cloud cover to cool the Earth? But first, citizen science. We've been wanting to bring this topic to the show like forever, so I'm really excited that we have an expert to describe it for you today. Basically, citizen science is research that's carried out by an amateur or non-degree scientist. You could do citizen science yourself. You can use your personal computer or your camera or your eyes or your brain to participate in important research projects that can really help push forward scientific knowledge. Introducing the topic of citizen science is John Dixon. I first met John at the 2019 Annual Conference of the Kentucky Academy of Science last year. John Dixon is a science educator and another board member of KAS, like Scott Miller. John's background is in electrical engineering, and he had this crazy apparatus at the conference for teaching physics. I think it was a Van der Graaff generator, but it generated static electricity when I touched it, and, and we were both quite excited about it, literally. Well, today, John Dixon is going to tell you about another thing that excites him, citizen science, and how you might get involved. Take it away, John. Hi, I am John Dixon, science educator and a board member of the Kentucky Academy of Science. And today I'd like to talk to you about citizen science and becoming involved in your own home. So there are a lot of ways to help for scientific advancement from home and be a part of important findings by being a citizen scientist. Options are even available on apps for devices and don't require doing research or expertise in a given field, but rather helping to interpret data using a keen eye and some creativity. One of the most common platforms is Zooniverse, Z-O-O-N-I-V-E-R-S-E, available on an app on iOS and Android, as well as their website, zooniverse.org. 
and the design of this in most citizen science projects gives you an overview of the topic and importance of the research being done. Projects range from astronomy to zoology, with specific activities ranging from identifying shapes and changes in beautiful pictures of auroras in the Aurora Zoo project, to listening for distinct sounds in the noise pollution of New York City for a project called Sonic. Another great project is to help look over the notebooks of the Sisters of the Stars and match the classifications of stars made by Annie Cannon and her team to the slides that they represent with original photographs in the archives. These notebooks have faded over time, but this gives us an opportunity to learn about the important role played by an amazing group of female astronomers and put to good use our practice of trying to read your friend's bad handwriting. Project I'm currently working on in my spare time while staying safe at home is Backyard Worlds Planet 9, which analyzes telescope images of areas of the sky where we have mathematical evidence suggesting the presence of a large ninth planet beyond the Kuiper Belt, and it's disturbing the orbits of several Kuiper Belt objects. This just involves looking at two pictures taken of the same part of the sky at different times and selecting objects that may be moving. There's no need to worry about making the wrong identification. The work is looked over by other citizen scientists, as well as the researchers. The other benefits to doing these projects is that your input is used to help with machine learning, so that one day we can more reliably use computer algorithms to go over the data that requires the human eye and mind right now. You can also go to science.nasa.gov forward slash citizen science, or search online for other opportunities to help. But citizen science is a very important contribution towards scientific discovery and learning. Thank you. Scott here. The hallmark of good science is that continued testing and retesting can either find flaws in a current hypothesis or theory, or give confidence to those scientists using it to help gain better understanding of the world and the universe we find ourselves in. Testing has led to the fall of what were once cherished theories, forcing a rethink of how to better find ways of describing that which is around us. In physics, one theory that seems to undergo its share of testing and retesting is Einstein's theory of general relativity. General relativity grew out of the limitations used to develop his special theory of relativity by allowing for accelerations, including the acceleration of objects due to gravity. In this sense, while special relativity was developed as a comprehensive description of light and by extension electricity and magnetism of which light is related, general relativity was to explain the nature of gravity. In many instances, describing gravity as a force at a distance, which Newton introduced, works for much of what we see in the universe. General relativity is needed when gravitational effects become much more intense. It is in this region where Newton's law of gravity breaks down. One of the first explanations that came out of general relativity was that related to the movement of the near point of Mercury's orbit to the Sun. Like all of the planets, Mercury's orbit is elliptical. This explanation actually predates Newton's law of gravity, though his law of gravity and laws of motion validated the explanation. As an elliptical orbit, there is a point where the orbit is closer to the Sun than average, and a point where it is farther. 
The near point is called the perihelion point, a word that means near the sun. As telescopes improved through the 18th and 19th centuries, it became apparent to astronomers that this near point moved forward in its own orbit around the sun. The effect was small, not noticeable unless looked for. Newton's law of gravity and laws of motion could account for most of the movement of the perihelion point, but not all. Einstein used his general theory of relativity to explain the whole of the shift, including the incompatible portion between prediction and observation when using Newton's laws. Since then, other opportunities to use general relativity to predict such shifts in the orbits of other bodies have been searched for. It accounts for those seen in the orbit of Venus, for example, which are much smaller than that of Mercury. With greater distances from the Sun and its intense gravity, the more Newtonian the gravity effects become, so intense gravity fields are needed for further tests. In comes black holes. Best explained by general relativity to begin with, to test the idea of a perihelion shift, one must have an orbiting body in close to the black hole. Those created by the death of stars may be somewhat plentiful, but remain elusive because of their nature of not allowing light to escape. A few have been found with stellar companions, which helped to reveal the otherwise invisible corpse of a dead massive star. Supermassive black holes are believed to lurk at the heart of galaxies. Evidence from observations of galaxies support this suspicion, even at the center of our own Milky Way galaxy, and our own is the closest such example. Known as Sagittarius A star, this behemoth boasts a mass of about 4 million times the mass of the Sun. This is moderate in size compared to those discovered at the heart of larger, more active galaxies, but no slouch. Safely tucked away at the center of our galaxy at a distance of about 26,000 light years, we have nothing to fear from it. Newtonian gravity works really well at this distance. But there are stars that orbit that black hole at distances where general relativity is the better used, and it has been so applied. Researchers with the European Southern Observatory have been analyzing the motion of those stars for over 20 years. Their concentration has been one star in particular called S2. It is so close to the central black hole that it completes one orbit in about 16 years. In its elliptical orbit, it can get as close as 17 light hours, or about 120 times the separation of Earth from the Sun, at perhelion. In a campaign that began in earnest a few years ago, the group has been able to finally publish their results. The finding, to quote from the announcement of the discovery, was that observations made with ESO's very large telescope have revealed for the first time that a star orbiting the supermassive black hole at the center of the Milky Way moves just as predicted by Einstein's general theory of relativity. Its orbit is shaped like a rosette and not like an ellipse as predicted by Newton's theory of gravity. If you've ever played with a spirograph when you were younger, you may have created a rosette pattern, one that initially starts out as an ellipse, but with each orbit of the geared drawing tool, the ellipse shifted its position, eventually producing the pattern of a shifting ellipse known as a rosette when complete. 
Now we have general relativity explaining how gravity, intense gravity, can make the same pattern. As I said at the beginning, testing and retesting are the hallmarks of the sciences, whether physics, astronomy, chemistry, biology, or climatology. Scientists make their claims of what can or may happen as a result of the confidence built by this process when applied to their theories. It is unfortunate that some in power reject this good science for their own selfish ends, exaggerating the truth in order to put fear in their constituents who then, in turn, vote to keep them in that position of power, sometimes against the best interests of those very constituents. In the end, the science is true, even if the political claims are not. This is Tom Martin with another in our series of podcasts featuring some of the contributors to a book of essays about cancer in the Appalachian region of the Commonwealth. Kentucky ranks first in the nation for overall rates of cancer incidence and mortality, 26,000 new cases of cancer and more than 10,000 deaths each year. This podcast series brings you the voices of contributors to The Cancer Crisis in Appalachia, Kentucky Students Take Action. Edited by Nathan Vanderford, Lauren Hudson, and Chris Pritchard, the essays are the works of 20 high school and five undergraduate students, all residents of Kentucky's Appalachian region, who are participants in the University of Kentucky Markey Cancer Center's Appalachian Career Training in Oncology, or ACTION, program. They aspire to careers in the field of oncology, hoping to combat a disease that has ravaged their homes and communities. Here's one now. My name is Zachary Hall, a native of Letcher County, and my bloodline is filled with cancer warriors who have both won and lost against this monstrosity. Zach Hall, author of Cancer, A War on the Home Front. I'm ready to take up arms against this evil and fight on the front lines, so to speak, in this war that has gone on for too long. My desire to go into the medical field and to focus on oncology is fueled by my experiences my family has gone through with cancer. It has turned my desire into a sense of duty, an act of vengeance against this plague. It takes a certain mindset to know at Zach's age that you want to dedicate your life to fighting something as terrible as cancer. I've always been fascinated by like just examining the people around me and how I play into other people's lives and how they play into mine. Zach comes by it naturally, coming from a long line of cancer sufferers. My family had cancer going back generations. On my family specifically, we deal with colon cancer. Every single one of our generations, we've had colon cancer. My great great-grandmother had it, my great-grandfather had it. And it doesn't end there. It just keeps on attacking us. And the cancer in Zach's family, going back to his great-grandfather James M. Caudill Jr. and great-great-grandmother Atha Caudill. James and his mother both had colon cancer and it was both in the exact same spot. Surgeon said that he had never seen anything like it. So all of this came together in Zach's mind. He realized that it's up to him and his generation to take on this fight. How it affected my family, it really opened my eyes up to how it affected everyone else too. And then that's when I just put my foot down and I said, well, I'm gonna do something about that. And I joined the action program. Oncology is a huge field. 
Pathologists are needed to read laboratory tests. Diagnostic radiologists conduct imaging tests to diagnose the disease. There's a need for oncology nurses, oncology social workers, medical, surgical, radiation, gynecologic, and pediatric oncologists are among the many fields of expertise. I'm really interested in surgery. Like when I went into the OR this past summer, I got to examine a partial gastrectomy where they removed a tumor from inside this woman's stomach. And as soon as I walked into that operating room, I just knew that's where I needed to be and that's how I could fight cancer on the front lines. In his essays, Zach invites us to visit Letcher County, Kentucky, get out of your car, talk to people, ask them what they think is causing all of this cancer in the area. There's a saying here in Letcher County, it's in the water. Zach has read research that indicates pollution from the area's coal mines and neglectful waste dumping in the rivers and streams in the area have left a sickening and often deadly legacy. They actually did a study here in eastern Kentucky on our water, and it was harmful. And more people are starting to realize that, that this water and other contaminants are leading to our high cancer rates, along with people not wanting to go and get tested. That reluctance to be tested for cancer is a recurring theme in these essays. And most often, it's about distance, the long drives to and from major cancer treatment centers, such as Markey at the University of Kentucky in Lexington. We have these people that really need treatments, and they're so far away from it that it's a barrier for them to try and get there. What's a one-way drive from Letcher County to Lexington? Between two and a half to three hours. So a full workday. For many, that's just not possible. You have some families that have to work nonstop to put food on their table and they just can't put the time down to go and drive someone to go get treatment or they don't have the money to take someone to go get treatment. So what is the answer? You've heard the saying, knowledge is power. Knowledge is key in this war. We have to outsmart cancer. We have to be able to look at it from different perspectives. We have to know it inside and out. We have to know our enemy before we can do anything else. So education is how we are going to learn about cancer. Education is how we're going to learn to attack cancer. Education is going to be what fuels our fire to. And how will Zach Hall gain that knowledge? I will most likely go to UK. If not UK, then Duke, Harvard, some other medical school. I'm just going wherever I can get the best education in that cancer field so that I can battle cancer the best I can. Zachary Hall of Letcher County, Kentucky. Read his essay, Cancer, A War on the Home Front. It's among the 25 by young, aspiring oncology professionals of Eastern Kentucky, contained in the pages of The Cancer Crisis in Appalachia, Kentucky Students Take Action. It's available on Amazon.com. I'm Tom Martin. Thanks for listening. Scientists use models to test their understanding of particular systems. These models can be refined over time as better data becomes available. To the degree there is a match between predictions in the model and real outcomes measured by independent sources, scientists can become more confident in predicting future outcomes based on current input data. This confidence building has been growing in the predictions of climate models. In an article in a recent edition of NASA's Global climate change news, researchers have found that most of the models have been quite accurate. 
The team compared 17 increasingly sophisticated models and their predictions of global average temperature with the actual observed temperature data gathered by many sources, including NASA's Goddard Institute of Space Studies. Of the 17, 10 of the model predictions closely matched the observations. When additional factors were accounted for in terms of differences between the models, that number went from 10 to 14 out of the 17 models whose outputs were compared. The conclusion, according to Gavin Schmidt of the Goddard Institute of Space Studies, a co-author of the paper, the results of this study of past climate models bolster scientists' confidence that both they as well as today's more advanced climate models are skillfully projecting global warming. This research could help resolve public confusion around the performance of past climate modeling efforts. And clearing up confusion is quite important. At present, more than a few politicians, from the President through the Senate and House, primarily of one particular party, constantly attempt to scare the public into thinking that climate change is a hoax or not as big of a deal as scientists have claimed. Their motivation in this is to continue to support the fossil fuel industry, who does contribute large sums to political coffers. They claim that reducing our dependence on fossil fuels in favor of, say, solar energy or wind energy will raise electric bills, make us more energy dependent on other countries, reduce jobs, and a host of additional scare tactics. In reality, they are lining their pockets and their war chests with monies from the very entities that are contributing to the problem. One such misdirection was thwarted in the March edition of the same NASA climate publication mentioned earlier. That was the claim by some of these politicians that we are headed toward a mini ice age, not a warming catastrophe. In an article titled, There is no impending mini ice age, the opening paragraph clearly states, pink elephant in the room time, there is no impending ice age or mini ice age to be caused by an expected reduction in the sun's energy output in the next several decades. The claim by some of these non-scientist politicians was that the sun sometimes becomes quieter, experiencing much fewer sunspots and giving off less energy. If a large enough period of reduced energy output from the sun were to happen, there would be a substantial cooling here. This is called a grand solar minimum, and the last time this happened, it coincided with a period called the Little Ice Age, a period of extremely low solar activity from approximately 1650 to 1715 AD in the Northern Hemisphere, where a combination of cooling from volcanic aerosols and low solar activity produce lower surface temperatures. How big of an effect might a grand solar minimum have? In terms of climate forcing, a factor that could push the climate in a particular direction, solar scientists estimate it would be a negative 0.1 watts per meter squared, the same impact of about three years of current carbon dioxide concentration growth. The conclusion of this study is that a new grand solar minimum would only serve to offset a few years of warming caused by human activities. Moreover, the warming caused by the greenhouse gas emissions of humans burning fossil fuels is six times greater than the possible decades-long cooling from a prolonged grand solar minimum. Oops, so much for non-scientists trying to persuade the public that climate change would be greatly offset by sun-reducing output from time to time. Another article in the same publication concerned the effects of clouds 
with further increases of temperature and carbon dioxide output. The hope by climate scientists is that newer models would include the effects of cloud cover, which is a difficult task even for today's supercomputers. The model looked at small areas of Earth's simulated surface concentrating on the effects on low-lying stratocumulus clouds, the most common types of clouds we generally see. If the buildup of greenhouse gases were to, say, increase even slightly the amount of Earth's surface these clouds covered, global warming would slow down significantly. But if cloud coverage were to decrease, the world would heat up. In this high-resolution simulation, global temperatures rose and stratocumulus clouds thinned at a fairly steady pace as carbon dioxide concentration increased, until the concentration reached roughly triple today's level. At that point, the clouds broke up and without their cooling effect, the global temperature jumped by about 14 degrees Fahrenheit. This study further showed that returning to the current normal in cloud cover might only occur if greenhouse gas concentrations fell to half the level found in the atmosphere present. This model is in its earliest development, and extending it to cover broader regions of the Earth's surface will depend on better supercomputers. But it gives pause to any claim that increasing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere by humans burning fossil fuels can only be a slight problem, as claimed by some of these politicians. Now, none of this is intended to scare, but instead to educate. There are issues with our current energy generating processes. With ever better models that make predictions validated by data collected from a variety of sources, the public can be better educated and begin to hold their public servants more accountable. Education can be a powerful tool against misinformation or misdirection, a tool some politicians are not necessarily wanting their constituents to have. We as a state, as a nation, as a global community need to gird ourselves with as much factual information as we can to offset the less than factual scare tactics of those who wish to stay in power because it suits their pocketbook. Only with this added education can we hold them accountable to us, those that put them into office, and if they don't change their tune, just as quickly elect them out. that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, the week in science. We think the world is a fascinating place and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word benchtalkradio at gmail.com Now all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives that's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. 
This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time. 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMP LP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you. Mm-hmm.